0: Passage. If you, have, if you remember the last two times I've taught, we've been in this passage. Um, so this is now the third week. I think last time I taught, I said I'm probably going to teach two more weeks in it. I'm going to try to finish up today, okay? But I have my work cut out for me, so je- we're just going to dive in. Um, I, I see this passage as a sort of foundational text for the truth of sanctification, the biblical truth of sanctification or growing in holiness the biblical teaching of progressively progressively becoming more like Christ. And so the first two messages, the first one, I just unpacked what sanctification is, kind of uh, what God does and what we do. And one thing that I harped on, if you remember, is that sanctification is not just passively letting go and letting God. Uh, Rather, it's a convergence of God's massive grace and his power and our exerting great energy and effort as well. It's not one or the other, it's both, and it's not a zero-sum game. It's not like God does 90% and we add 10. God does 100% of his work, we do 100% of ours, and ours is dependent upon his. So that, that, was, that was our first message in this passage. And then second, we, last time I taught, we looked at how sanctification is growing in godly qualities. It's not just kind of growing in ways that we think we ought to grow. I mean, certainly we, there's convergence there, but it's not just kind of generally becoming a better person or becoming a better you or anything like that, but it's specific godly qualities that God wants to add to our lives, that he wants us to add to our lives. And so we looked at this list Uh, that Peter gives us. He says, supplement your faith with virtue and virtue with knowledge and knowledge with self-control and so forth. And um, so in one sense, it's not an exhaustive list because we could think of other things to add to this. But in in another sense, it is kind of an exhaustive list because of where it begins and where it ends. It begins with faith. It ends with love, right? Faith is the foundation. Love is the culmination. Faith is the foundation. Love is, is the apex of Christian virtues. And so, that's where we've been the last two messages. My hope in this final look at this passage is that you not only gain an understanding of what sanctification is and what it looks like to be sanctified, what qualities were to grow in, but also that you would be inspired and determined and resolved to pursue it with all of God's strength that powerfully works within you. And if you're a Christian, His strength is powerfully working within you to this end. So, what we have in this passage, there's four things I want to look at in this passage. First, we see a promise to those who are on the path of sanctification. Second, we see a warning to those who are not. Third, we see a command. And fourth, we see an outcome of walking in this way. So, there's a promise, a warning, a command and an outcome, okay? So first, a promise. In verse 8, we see that there's a promise for those on the path of sanctification. And the promise is this, is that if you're on that path, you will be useful and fruitful for Christ. It's that you will be useful and fruitful for Him. Verse 8 says this, For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, They keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Every genuine Christian wants to bear fruit for Jesus, they want their life to bear fruit for Him. And every genuine Christian wants to be effective in their walk with Christ as well, they want to be useful. Well, this is the path to usefulness. It's the path to bearing fruit. If these qualities are yours, and notice, and are increasing, that's the language of sanctification. That's the language of progressively growing, right? It's not just that they're yours, but they're also increasing. Over time, these qualities are increasing. We're on a, you've heard people say, we're on a journey. Well, the journey is we are becoming more like Jesus the longer we walk with him. So this is the way to be effective and fruitful. And I think what we need to understand first is what Peter means by the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. He said if, if, if these qualities are yours and they're increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. What does that mean? What is this knowledge of Jesus Christ? Well, it's more than just notions of Jesus or just intellectual thoughts about Jesus. It's more than just being able to spout kind of blandly the gospel and so forth. It it goes deeper than that. The Greek word epinosis, gnosis is the, the Greek word for knowledge or knowing or know, and epi kind of heightens or emphasizes that or increases the emphasis on it. It means more than just a notional understanding, but a true, correct, deep knowledge of Christ, a knowledge that transforms So the New American Standard translates this true knowledge. It says, these qualities are yours and they're increasing. It keeps you from being ineffective or unfruitful in a true knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. It indicates that this is a real experiential knowledge of Jesus. It's not just that you show up to church. It's not just that you try to be a good person. It's that you have met the King of the universe, Jesus Christ, and he has transformed your life. Peter uses the same phrase in his greeting of this letter, just eight verses before. And I think it's clear that he's talking about a saving knowledge, a saving knowledge of Christ, a knowledge that connects us to Jesus in a saving way. In that verse, verse 2, he says, "...may grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus Christ our Lord." Grace and peace multiplied in the knowledge of Jesus Christ." That's a true knowledge. That's a deep knowledge. It's not just a passive. I kind of know some things about Jesus. No, no, no. This is a true, deep, life-changing knowledge. In other words, a saving knowledge of Christ will lead to being useful for Christ. A saving knowledge of Christ will lead to bearing fruit for Christ. And of course, how could it be otherwise? To know Christ in this way is to be vitally connected to him Who is the author of life? And how could someone be vitally connected to Jesus and not bear fruit? It's impossible. Now it's interesting, Peter uses, um, he kind of puts this in the negative. He uses two words in the negative. He says it keeps you from being ineffective or unfruitful. And uh, these words are similar, but there's there's some difference between the the two of them. So let's just kind of think about both of them separately just for a moment. To possess these qualities of faith and virtue and so forth keeps you from being ineffective in the knowledge of Christ. Ineffective. It's an interesting word that actually is used in two contexts in the New Testament. The first context is used in more of a secular way. It's translated in the New Testament, idle or lazy or something like that. So Jesus uses this word to speak of the workers that, that the master goes and sends into the vineyard in that parable, and it says the, ma- the master went to the marketplace and found men idle. They were lazy, they are not, they weren't necessarily lazy, but they were idle. They weren't doing anything. They were just sitting around. P- or, excuse me, Paul in Titus, um, he quotes a Cretan prophet who said, Cretans are always liars evil beasts lazy gluttons it's that word lazy that's the same word ineffective is being idle like the men standing around in the marketplace not doing anything it's like being lazy as the Cretan prophet describes some Cretans but then James uses this word to describe a certain kind of faith that has no works so you're familiar perhaps with James chapter 2 this idea of faith and works living faith That's that's accompanied with works, a dead faith, where someone says, I believe, I have faith, but there's no works that accompany it. And here's what James says in James 2.20. He said, do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless, ineffective? There's that word, useless. So to be ineffective in the knowledge of Christ is to be lazy, idle, useless to be a Christian in name only. But to possess these qualities, to be growing in these qualities, it keeps you from being ineffective. It keeps you from being useless, from being lazy, from being idle, but rather effective, active, busy for Christ. J.I. Packer, in his book, Knowing God, I was talking to someone last night, I said, okay, if there's one book that I would give to everyone, if I could, it'd be Knowing God by J.I. Packer. So if you haven't read that book, write it down, go buy it, or ask me, I'll get you a copy. Um, And and what I would say is this, get through the first two chapters and you won't want to put it down. Somewhere, I think in chapter two, J.I. Packer said something like this, those who know God have great energy for God. Those who know God, those who truly know God, have great energy for God. Or we could say those who know Christ are useful, they're effective, they're busy for Christ. The second word is unfruitful. To possess the qualities that Peter lays out, to be growing in these things, keeps you from being unfruitful. We know what unfruitful means. It means to be barren or to not yield what ought to be yielded or produced. The picture is of a, of a tree that doesn't produce the fruit it's supposed to produce. So we have this peach tree, and, and our, we really do. And for years, for six years, it never produced more than like three little peaches that never got bigger than this. And I was ready to chop it down. Guess what this year? Oh my goodness, there's like 50 peaches that are almost ripe. Praise God. But all right, to be anyways, to be unfruitful is to have a tree that doesn't produce fruit. Ready to chop it down, throw it into the fire. It's to have a field that should be growing corn and it's barren. There's nothing there. It's not yielding anything. But again, the promise for the Christian is that we will bear fruit. If we're connected to Christ, if we're growing in these qualities, we will bear fruit for Christ and for his glory. So the one who's who has these qualities and is are growing in them, qualities like faith and self-control and steadfastness and love and so forth, will not be barren. That's the promise. They will be fruitful. Now we don't always see. I mean, you can't go out to a tree and actually see the fruit grow. Sometimes it seems like it's so slow and imperceptible, but we will bear fruit for Christ. And of course, this is what every true Christian wants. It's to bear fruit. And again, how could a Christian not bear fruit? A true Christian, right? A true Christian's connected to Christ who calls himself the true vine. To be a Christian is to be a, a branch connected to Christ, the life-giving vine. And to be connected to Christ is to be a fruit-bearing Branch. Personally, I, I I find it deeply encouraging and actually invigorating to like get going and work to, to grow, to know that the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, all three, are conspiring together to make us fruitful. Isn't that encouraging? Um, we all know the the great passage, the great fruit of the Spirit passage in Galatians five, the fruit of the Spirit. contrasting the works of the flesh. And he says, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. These are the things the Holy Spirit is producing in Christians. Sometimes it seems slow, but he is producing these things. So the Holy Spirit is at work to do that. In John 15, we see that the Father and the Son are also working in harmony, in perfect unity to make us fruitful. Listen to, to a sampling of what Jesus says in John 15. We just went through this Saturday morning in our men's study. Powerful. Listen to what Jesus said, John 15, verses 1 and 2. He, says, he said, I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes it so that it may bear more fruit. More fruit. Verses 4 and 5, Jesus said, "'Abide in me, and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit, for apart from me you can do nothing.'" Verse 8, Jesus said, By this my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. Verse 16, Jesus said, You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you to go and bear fruit, fruit that should abide. What do you hear? Fruit. Much fruit. Lasting fruit. It comes from being connected to the vine, Jesus Christ. It comes from being a branch connected to the true vine. Christ gives us all the strength and nourishment as the vine that we need and we work out what he works in Right? We talked about that weeks ago. He, we work out what He works in. He works in us these qualities of faith and, and, and virtue and self-control and so forth, and we work those things out with His strength. The true Christian is the one who abides in the vine and produces fruit for God's glory. So, the promise is that for those who are On the path of sanctification, they will not be useless, they will not be idle, they will not be lazy or unfruitful or barren in the knowledge of Jesus Christ. Rather, they will be useful to the master, bearing fruit for his glory. Brothers and sisters, this is an awesome promise. This is a promise for us. If we are in Christ, if we are on that path of sanctification, which is the only path that leads to eternal life, by the way, if we're on that path, this is a promise for us. But there's also a warning in this text. It's a warning for those who are not growing, who lacks the qualities of faith and virtue and self-control and steadfastness and godliness and so forth. The warning is found in verse 9. Here's what Peter says, For whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he's blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. He's so nearsighted that he's blind. Those who lack these qualities, those who don't have these qualities, they're not growing in these qualities. They're so nearsighted that they are blind. But Peter, I think we might see, say nearsighted and blind, those seem like two different things, right? If you're nearsighted, you're not blind. But I think he's just using compounding words to get across the point that this person can't see. It's a metaphor that speaks of an inability to see. A person who lacks these qualities is blind. Now the question is blind to What? Blind to his salvation, says having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. Blind to the fact that his sins have been forgiven, the joyful reality that he's been saved. Now think about what this is saying. The man or woman who is not growing lives kind of in this dim fog or this blindness, this inability to see and experience the joy of salvation. It's to live with a darkened confusion and lack of assurance of salvation. Listen to how the Bible speaks about our salvation. Just listen, just a sampling. This is just a small sampling. We could, we could, I could quote hundreds of passages, but just listen, a small sampling of how the Bible speaks about our salvation. Psalm 32, one and two. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven. The word blessed means happy. Happy is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. How blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity. How happy is that person? Paul says in Galatians 6.14, far be it from me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. Boasting, glorying, exalting in the cross. That's how Christians ought to Speak and feel and live. 1 Peter 1, 3-6. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is unfading, imperishable, and undefiled, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power being guarded through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. In Listen to what Peter says. In this you greatly rejoice. Let me ask you, do you greatly rejoice in salvation? And if you'd say, I don't know, you know, I mean, that sounds like pretty strong language. I'm not sure that I'm just like, I'm not sure that my, the source of my happiness is the fact that my sins are forgiven. Then maybe this applies to you. It might. This is explosive, lively joy-filled language. The person who is not actively growing in sanctification, who is not growing in faith and brotherly love and knowledge and so forth, doesn't talk that way. And it's because they're blind to that reality. They've lost sight of that glorious reality. Reality. The gospel's maybe no longer the greatest good news in the world. Maybe it's just news. And worse, maybe it's old news. The person who's not growing lives with this uncertainty of whether or not he's even saved often. Now, he might give the right answer. Listen, I've been there. I know what that's like. I do. He might give the right answer. I know I could have. But inside, there's just this milieu of uncertainty. Or at least, this person doesn't have the absolute confidence and the attendant joy in life that he is saved. Of course, this doesn't happen because you sinned once, or it doesn't happen overnight, it happens over time. Hebrews talks about neglecting so great a salvation or drifting from the great salvation that is ours in Christ. Drifting and neglecting, that's different than running with all of your might away from it. That just happens gradually over time. That's just like just kind of going with the wind or going with the current The person being described here has forgotten the glorious truth that his sins are forgiven. That they've been removed as far as the east is from the west and they will never be counted against him again. Isn't that the greatest news in the world? Not just the day I got saved, but today still. Because my sins aren't counted against me, God is 100% for me now and forever. But if my sins are counted against me, God is against me. That's the greatest news in the world, to know that our sins have been removed, that the bar of justice has been satisfied in the courtroom of heaven concerning me. That is gloriously happy and good news, that I've been reconciled, that I'm a beloved child of God, that I'm an heir of God and a co-heir with Christ. Now, I think Peter's talking about a Christian who experiences this. And though I think this is speaking of a, perhaps a Christian experience or the experience a Christian can have, it's a similar experience to a non-Christian. Unbelievers are totally blind to Christ. Right? The God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel, the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. A non-Christian may be able to expound the basic gospel message of John 3.16, which is a glorious message, but they don't love it. It doesn't fill them with joy. It doesn't give them a rich assurance that it's true for them, that the God of the universe loves them, and that they will spend eternity with him. Brothers and sisters, I think this is a serious thing. And if you find yourself here, if you think, if if you're thinking he might be describing me. Not me, but Peter, or the Holy Spirit. In the Bible, this might be describing me. Then you have to take the command that Peter issues very seriously. Because the promise and the warning begs the question for all of us, okay, if the promise is that those on the path of sanctification bear fruit and they're effective, they're useful for God, and The warning is those who are not on that path, they're in kind of a dangerous place. How then should we live? What should we do? Now, here's where we can make a mistake of how we respond. And I'm going to harp on something again. Some would say, you know what? All I need, all I need to do is just let go and let God do his work in me. Or all I need to do is just look to Christ. We sang about it, right? Turn your eyes upon Jesus. That's all I need to do. Or all I need to do is just submit to God. Like, these are passive things, right? That's all we do is just, we yield ourselves to God, we submit to God, we look to Jesus. And those are all good things. Of course we want God to do his work in us, what pleases him. Of course we submit to God. Of course we look to Jesus. But that's not it. Thankfully, we're not left wondering what to do. Peter tells us. Well, the Holy Spirit tells us, All right, The Holy Spirit's the divine author of Scripture. He tells us, and we're issued a strong command. This is not a suggestion. This is a command. It's not saying, you know, think about it. Okay, it's saying, do this. Verse 10. It says, Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election. For if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. So, verse 10 begins with a therefore, which signals to us that what comes next is predicated on what came before. Okay, so because of the great promise for those on the road of sanctification and the serious warning for those not on the road of sanctification, here's what Peter says, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election. Now, calling and election, I'm not going to take a lot of time. This, this could be a six-week series too, I suppose. But um, just very briefly... Okay? And I would like to do that, but I'm not going to today. Um, calling, this is talking about the effectual calling of the Holy Spirit okay? through the hearing of the gospel where we are granted the gift of faith and believe in Jesus and are saved. Election speaks of Ephesians 1, Romans 9, God choosing us before the foundation of the world to be his children. Now, we don't have to get into any of the controversy of election. That's just what the Bible says. He chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world. Okay? So that's calling an election. It's talking about our salvation. God's gracious redeeming of us through Jesus. So be all the more diligent to confirm your salvation. Now notice it says confirm, not cause. It doesn't say do these things to cause your salvation, but rather to confirm it. Now, what's fascinating is that this phrase, be all the more diligent, in verse 10, is the exact same phrase in the Greek as make every effort in verse 5. It's the exact same phrase. There it says, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue. Virtue with knowledge, knowledge with self control, and so forth. Here it says, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election or to confirm your salvation. So, how do we confirm our calling and election? How do we confirm our salvation? By growing, by pursuing growth, by pursuing sanctification, by growing in faith and virtue, and knowledge, and self-control, and steadfastness, and godliness, and brotherly affection, and love. That's how, we grow, that's, how, that's how we confirm our salvation. Now, I understand the Holy Spirit gives us an inner witness. There are times where we have this extraordinary inner witness of the Spirit. I get that. But day to day, the way we confirm our salvation is by following Christ in obedient faith. That's how we we confirm that we're truly children of God. We don't close our eyes and say, oh Lord, just whisper in my ear that I'm really yours. No, we don't do that. We put our feet on the ground and we say, what does it mean to follow Jesus? He died for my sins. He rose again. I'm his. What does it mean to follow him? And walking after Christ in obedient faith. So... We confirm our salvation by growing in sanctification, by growing in these virtues, and I would suggest by start, starting with faith. That's where it all starts. Starting with faith. Do you have a living faith in Christ? Where you have thrown off all self-confidence to save yourself by your goodness, which, okay, lets you in on a secret. You don't have any. Neither do I. Okay, it's Okay. Have you thrown off all confidence in yourself to commend yourself to God by your good works and trust it in Christ alone? The Puritans uh, had a saying that went something like this. um, We are saved by faith alone, but the, the faith that saves is never alone. You understand that? So we're saved by faith alone. We're saved by looking to Jesus in faith alone. We don't add anything to that. But the the faith that truly saves is never alone. It's always accompanied by works. The works don't save us. They accompany a living faith. It's the same thing James says. Saving faith could never be described as a dead faith. It's a living faith that works. So the command is to not sit idly by just letting go and letting God or, or just, just merely submitting to God or just merely looking to Christ. Amen to all of that, at least a second two. <laughs> but we are to be zealous to grow and pursue it to become more like Christ. <clears throat> so... What's the outcome of this? So we've, we've heard the promise for those who are on the path. We looked at the warning for those who are not on the path of sanctification. We hear the command based on the promise and the warning. What's the outcome? Verse 11. For in this way, there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. In this way. In what way? In the way of walking like this, in practicing these qualities, in growing in these qualities in that way, there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Do you hear what it's saying? Entrance into the eternal kingdom. And so in one sense, we under, hopefully we understand this, in one sense we've entered the kingdom. Jesus came proclaiming the kingdom, repent. For the kingdom of God is at hand. We've entered the kingdom. But this is talking about something in the future. Entering the eternal kingdom, the eternal realm. This is saying the road of sanctification is the road on which we experience the happy and rich assurance of our future reward in heaven. And this is the path that prepares us for heaven. So J.C. Ryle said something like this. In his book, Holiness, he, he differentiates between justification and sanctification. And he said, justification is our, it's our right to heaven. And it gives us boldness to enter. Sanctification is our preparation for heaven. I mean, no, I'm sorry. Sanctification is, uh, is the path toward heaven and it prepares us to enjoy it. Think about that. Think of, think of somebody is just a completely unsanctified, but they're, they're really a Christian. Would they enjoy being in heaven? They wouldn't. It's a holy place, right? God's there. So it prepares us for heaven. So in the way of holy living, there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. The way of sanctification is the best way to live happily And die comfortably. To live with joy and to die in peace. So, do you want to live happily? This is the way. Do you want to to die comfortably and at peace? This is the way. Breathing your final breath, rested, assured and even rejoicing that you will soon see your Savior face to face. This is the way. That's the way. Bearing fruit and being useful for Jesus along the way, there's no better way to live. So John Owen, who was one of the the Puritans in the 1600s over in Europe, in England, he was near death. And a friend of his named William Payne, he he was a friend who was overseeing John Owen's last book that he wrote, The book was called The Glory of Christ and it's a sweet book. It's a powerful book. And William Payne, his friend, paid him a visit and Payne told Owen, he said, hey, your book is going to be published soon. And John Owen's near death. And here's how Owen responded. I think these are the last recorded words of John Owen. He said, I'm glad to hear it, but oh, brother Payne, the long Wished for day has come at last, in which I shall see the glory of Christ in another manner than I have ever done or was capable of in this world. That's someone who's on that path. Right? In this way, there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom. John Knox, the Scottish reformer, these are his last words. Come, Lord Jesus, sweet Jesus, on his deathbed, okay? Sweet Jesus, into your hands I commend my spirit. I have tasted of the heavenly joys where I presently shall be. Now, for the last time, I commit my soul, body, and spirit into your hands. And then he sighed deeply and said, now it's come. That's powerful. These are men who lived in this way. And there are many other men and women who have. We know some of them. We want to be them. Right? And because they did, they lived happily. And when the, when the time came, they died comfortably in Christ and full of joy. Couldn't wait to see his face. So, look to Christ today. Look to his atoning work on your behalf. His death to take away all of your sins. Look to Christ and all the blessings that come through him. Ephesians 1 says every spiritual blessing comes through Christ. They belong to us in Christ. Look to Christ and all the blessings, the riches of his grace and kindness toward us. Look to Christ and believe in him. Have faith in him. Meditate on the promises. Oh, the promises that are ours in Christ. Romans 8.32 kind of covers it all. He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him give us all things? What a promise. Meditate on these promises. Stand on them. And then apply all diligence. Make every effort to confirm your salvation. Make every effort to furnish your faith with virtue and knowledge and self-control and steadfastness and godliness and brotherly affection and love. This is the path of unspeakable joy. Of course, there's going to be pain and trials for every Christian. But this is the path of unspeakable joy. This is the path of rich assurance. And this is the path that prepares you to enter the eternal kingdom of Christ. Amen? Let's pray. Father, I do thank you for your word today, and um, I pray that it would penetrate our hearts. I pray you'd take your word and plant it deep in us, shape and fashion us in the likeness of your Son. I pray, Father, that um, there would be a resolve, um, not a fleshly resolve, not just a resolve that goes no further than us, but a resolve that you plant in our hearts a determination you put there, inspiration you put there from your word and your spirit to make every effort to grow in Christ to the very end. That we would experience the rich joy that comes along with it and the full assurance from your spirit of our salvation and be prepared to meet our Savior face-to-face with joy. In Jesus' name. Everyone said, Amen. Would you stand, please? This is, a, uh, I think, a benediction that's fitting to close our service today. Jude, verses 24 and 25. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and